Welcome to Education Matters with the Matsubaro School District Superintendent, Dr. Randy Trainey, a podcast to look inside important education matters here in the Matsu. This is Jillian Morrissey, the Public Information Officer for the Matsubaro School District, and I am here in the studio with our Superintendent, Dr. Randy Trainey, and also our Deputy Superintendent of Business Services, Mr. Luke Fulp. And it's great to have you both here. And we are going to talk about a topic that is on a lot of people's minds right now. We are one of the largest districts in, uh, well, we're the largest district in Alaska that's in uh, person school right now. And I've even heard that on the West Coast, we're one of the larger districts that's offering in-person services. Um, And so we've had a lot of people reaching out. Uh, Media has been interested. Other districts have been interested in how we're keeping our schools open during uh, during COVID. And so I thought we would just have a chance to talk about some of the things that we've learned through this six weeks that we've had students and staff in our schools and also just uh, what's working. I want to start with, we should really start where it all began for us in the, the planning process. And Dr. Trainee at that time had uh, just been hired to come on into the Matsu and uh, Luke, uh, Luke Fulp was acting uh, superintendent at the time. And so he had the opportunity to help guide leadership through that planning process. So I wanted to start with you, Luke, and if you could tell us a little bit about the planning process and how, that, how we gathered together and started to make a plan and, um, in order to start school. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you, Jillian. Um, you know, first thing I want to say is uh, during the transition, it really was seamless because um, Dr. Monica Goyette started the planning. We actually started on May 19th. So that was two days before the school year ended for us. Um, and we knew we had to start that early because our goal was to keep uh, summer school open. So we really wanted to get students back in school. Um, after the extended closure during the spring, we knew that we needed to get students back, especially our most vulnerable students, to receive some of those direct services. And we knew ESY was an opportunity for us that we couldn't pass up. So we really focused on that June 29th day as getting students back in school for in-person services. And and that meant that we had to start planning early. So under uh, Dr. Goyette, we began that process. Um, It was seamless. Uh, She was, uh, as she transitioned out of her role, she was having, obviously, daily conversations with myself, but she was also interacting with Dr. Trini. Her last day was, uh, I believe, Friday, June 15th, and then that following Monday, Dr. Trini was actually on site with us. And throughout the summer, um, I had Dr. Trini on speed dial. We would talk daily, sometimes two, three times a day. Um, and then in addition to that, we have just a tremendous team of uh, leaders here at district office that just made this our primary focus and we we took such care in every step and uh, phase of planning as we approached June 29th where we knew we would have students back in school we would have buses on the road Um, again a very vulnerable student population Um, we we just knew we had to hit our marks and that meant lots of planning sessions on a weekly basis with a cross-functional team of district leaders. Yeah, I was hoping you could share a little bit about that because that was one of the questions people had during our community meetings of who was part of that planning process. Yeah, right away we knew, okay, if we need supplies for 
the, our extended school year program or the beginning of the school year, we needed to get those orders in soon. So mm -hmm. some of the people that were in the room were uh, our facilities team, our custodial workforce uh, leaders, um, our purchasing supervisor, our finance director, our risk manager, um, our educational leaders in the Office of Instruction. Everyone was uh, providing thoughts, input on what's, what's the late, what is it that we knew about the virus at that time and what were some of the key mitigation strategies and what were some of the products that we knew we were going to need as we approached the start of the school year. So we were looking at face shields, we were looking at hand sanitizer, we were looking at ways in which we could you know, um, get kids through a lunch line safely and wash hands. And, and um, all of those things really were, as, as the medical experts were producing more and more studies around the spread of the virus and what we were learning about how it spreads among even our youth, we were trying to, to prepare ourselves to get orders in as quickly as possible, uh, get, get everything that we may need in terms of consumables or supplies or even um, signage, uh, to help support our mitigation strategies and, and processes, we needed to get that in place so that we could have an orderly start to the school year and an, and an orderly start to this extended school year where we even looked at things like how will students enter and exit the school so that we could limit mixing and do that in a safe manner. So, so you mentioned, you know, we did... We started with extended school year, and that began June 29th, and I believe it went... Is it to July... It went to the end of July. I don't know the okay. exact date, but it went for about uh, three, four, four weeks total. And then, so initially, a, a lot of planning was developed around that, and then it was also continuing to look on for the rest of the year. But um, one of the things is we went out sort of on a road show and did a lot of community meetings. And we, gosh, we were at I, six or seven different sites talking to folks and meeting with parents, meeting with staff, addressing concerns. And that helped inform some of what we did as we were getting towards implementation. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about that at all. Yeah, you and I were at several of those events uh, with others from the district. I think one of the things that we recognized right away is COVID was on everyone's mind. It was not just about what whether or not we reopen schools, but is it safe to go to the grocery store? And can I bring my kids to the grocery store with me? And do I need wear a mask in this setting or not? And is it going to make people uncomfortable if I'm not um, six feet away, you know, so all those things that we were learning as a society and those new norms and these uh, ways to help prevent the spread, everyone was kind of getting thinking, wow, what is school going to look like when and if it ever reopens? And we had to kind of get out to the community and, and just have conversations, even though everyone was telling us to socially distance. We, we did know that we had to have those conversations. And a lot of the times those conversations are best face to face, even if you have to stand six feet apart. So it was very intentional, I think, on our part to get, get to get to certain venues like the Friday Fling in Palmer, where uh, it was safe because it was outdoors and uh, we were meeting people where they were. And we were just having those those basic conversations around all of our planning efforts to date, um, our plans to reopen um, and also ask them what where they were at with things, whether they were looking at homeschool, whether they were looking at an at home learning option, or if they were going to enroll with us. And we were trying to gauge everyone's comfort level by letting them know that the school year is approaching. One of the things that we know is that we want learning to occur and uh, we're going to try to provide as many options to families as possible, but we needed to hear from them about what it is that their interests were. Um, and also try to answer as many questions as, as we could to eliminate some of that uncertainty in their mind uh, because uh, parents have 
you know, their own schedules to contend with and thinking about the start of the school year and what it is that they do or don't do with their children, you know, was it, it's something that was on the forefront of everyone's mind. So I feel like that starts getting us towards a time where, and Dr. Trainee, you were here multiple times during all of this, and I just wanted to acknowledge that piece of it. But now we're getting to the time where you were about to transition and come in full time into the mat. So we're getting ready into that implementation phase. And so there were uh, multiple key decision-making points. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about some of those as you made some big decisions as soon as you landed and uh, were officially in this, officially here. Yeah, there, there were some big decisions. I think one of the biggest was even before I got here and during the transition, the decision to, in our planning process, to put in place the mechanism for students to switch from in-person learning to at-home learning and back seamlessly. That was a really important part of the planning because we knew that when we opened, there were going to be cases. Um, there were going, if we were going to, if we were going to do it right, we knew we were going to be excluding students and we had to have a mechanism where students could continue learning at home and then switch right back to in-person learning. That was a key decision during that process over the summer. I don't think we can stress enough to other folks how important all of the planning was up front. I had to get multiple batteries for my iPhone so I could make it through all of our Zoom meetings that we had every day. Luke, Luke had the same problem because we were on the phone with each other so much. One of the, another big important part of key decision was um, opening registration online. We delayed that opening till later on in the summer because it gave us time to work on, for instance, what's our online learning platform going to look like? What are we going to offer parents? We wanted to have a pretty concrete description or a menu for parents to choose from, so we delayed our online registration. And then that was kind of a a survey that we got from parents, like, how are you feeling? How comfortable are you feeling about coming back to school? And it was about 65, 70% of the students wanted brick-and-mortar learning, and we had taken enough time to provide other off-site uh, learning opportunities. So that was a big decision and remains a, and remains a really key point of staying open that we can go in and out of in-person in learning quickly. That very first week I was here, we made the decision to require masks at school. I think that decision epitomizes so many of the fears that everyone had at the time and still have about COVID. When you haven't lived through something, you can imagine all of the horrible things that might happen. The, all the what ifs. Yep, all, yep. The, all the dragons that might, uh, you know, that might come and descend on the village and burn it down. You can imagine all of them. And with the decision to require masks, lots of people could imagine lots of dragons that, A, kids wouldn't do it, and staff wouldn't do anything to mitigate the spread, and, you know, it's depriving students of oxygen. I mean, there was a whole number of, of worries that people had. Once we actually started, I was in a school today, second graders, third graders, they're all wearing their masks. We imagined it would be a problem. It's not a problem at all. Kids adapt so very quickly. It's become routine. Yep, yep. They they really don't know any better. Oh, well, we wear masks this year, and they all just wear them. So masks were a huge part. We've put together a health advisory team that meets every single day, and we discuss, we discuss community spread. We discuss spread within each school. 
Um, we look at indicators in the school, like absenteeism, the number of, ex- of exclusions. The health advisor team has been a really critical piece about keeping the district open. And, and an integral part of that are our partners in community health. If we didn't have the partnership that we have with community health, I'm, I don't think that this would be possible. For one thing, they're a super fantastic resource giving us the best science information that's available. Um, we have a conduit straight to the, our state uh, health experts because of our community health experts working with us. So we're, we get new information pretty much in real time, and that's critical. And then also their willingness to do the contact tracing that it takes to keep schools open is really, really critical. We couldn't do it without that. Another big change that we made before school started, and this was really, you know, this was a major shift, was we changed the secondary schedule in all of our schools 6 through 12. We eliminated Fridays for in-person learning. And all of these things that we're talking about here were to reduce the number of human-to-human interactions. That's one of the keys. So in a typical year, students in grades 6 through 12 would have had seven different periods a day, so they'd see seven different teachers, a mix of seven different groups of kids in each classroom, for five days a week, and we eliminated Friday, so we just cut it down by 20%. We went from seven periods to six periods, so that was a further reduction. We made all of the teachers have common prep period on Friday, so instead of having one-seventh of your staff prepping at any given time, they all were with kids, and so that further reduced the number of students. And we went to three periods one week, and three periods the next week. So all of those things combined reduce the number of human-to-human interactions at the secondary level. And that I think that has been really critical in keeping our secondary schools open when we've had cases because we knew we were going to have cases, and the goal was to mitigate, not eliminate. It's impossible to eliminate risk, but to mitigate risk. Another one that we discovered after school had started, and we were, we were experiencing... We were experiencing what it was like to actually live. It, we hadn't anticipated this dragon. We knew we were going to exclude students who showed symptoms. And we started out, you know, if you have a symptom. and the, Even just one. Even just one symptom. Runny nose. Runny nose. Yeah. A headache. Um, any of the symptoms. And there's a huge list of symptoms um, for COVID. We're going to eliminate you in, from school until you can come back with a test. We identified right away that there was a bottleneck there where kids and staff members were not able to get test results back in a timely fashion. They might have to wait six, seven, eight, nine, ten days. And we saw frustration build it with parents quickly, right? Like, you sent my kid home because they have a runny nose. Well, they're in kindergarten, and they have runny, runny noses often. And I got them tested, but I don't have the results. So we worked with community health partners and Capstone here in the Matsu Valley to get rapid testing, 15-minute testing. And that has been another super critical part in keeping schools open. So we're, we're, a little, we're six weeks and a day into it, and over 98% of the brick-and-mortar in-person learning student contact days have, have happened. So we're, you know, we know that we're going to continue to have cases, and we know we're going to continue to change our approach as we discover um, you know, things that we don't know. But we're pretty, we're pretty pleased right now. So that leads me to the next thing. Uh, like, And this is the question that I'm getting from public information officers and other public affairs folks is, so what's working? And you talked about some of these 
key decision-making points and some of these things you've implemented. But I was wondering, and maybe we can start with you, Luke, about what are some of the things that we know that are working in our favor to be able to keep at-school learning happening? I think it's something that I could look back in July when we were trying to make sense of the Alaska Smart Start Framework, which is the framework that was developed by the Department of Education and Early Development and the Department of Health and Social Services. They came up with a document to really kind of be our framework or guide for reopening schools, and they they produced that for all 53 school districts in the state of Alaska. We were then left to synthesize that, take what worked, uh, and what we could uh, take certain parts of it in the framework and add details uh, and structure that would work for our district. So it was very, it was written broadly so that you could apply it in a number of different environments. Uh, when you look across the state of Alaska, you have a pretty diverse set of communities. Uh, but for us specifically, when we took that document, we looked at how we define community. And I think early on, we realized with an area the size of the state of West Virginia, and schools, large and small, spread across this vast borough, we realized we had to define, we had to at least start in a situation where we were defining community as a single school site. And when I look at the last six weeks of when cases come up and our mitigation strategies and contact tracing with public health, I think it was imperative that we started in that spot where we were looking at each school independently and saying, we're going to assess the risk at this school as long as we can. I mean, granted, if we have widespread community transmission across the borough, we'll have to change. But right now we are doing it school by school and it's allowing us to do what Dr. Training just stated. It's keeping students in school as much as possible. We have many schools that have not had one interrupted day of in-person services, whereas others have had a couple cases that have popped up. We still have no evidence of the virus spreading in our schools. These are just cases that have been confirmed cases with either students or staff who either work or attend that school. So um, us being able to, to define each school as its own community and use the Alaska Start, Start, Smart Start framework in that way has really helped us, I think. It's positioned us to be responsive and to keep services going and schools open as much as possible. And so I think that that's been, again, back to our planning stage when we were interpreting that framework in July and figuring out how this would work uh, as when it's applied to our entire district. I think that that was a big win for us. Dr. Cheney, you want to weigh in? What's working? I can think of a few things. One thing that's working, I didn't highlight it enough earlier, is that as part of our planning, we knew that there were going to be parents and families at many different spots in their comfort level with regard to school. And we didn't try to think of this as we're going to do it all one way or all another. So we have allowed and given two different pathways for parents to keep their students home, both at, uh, at home learning is where they, are, they work with a Matsu Borough School District teacher and a more traditional correspondence learning. And that has been really critical in keeping it open for the 65, 70% of students who want to have brick and mortar learning because it's made classes smaller. So that's been important. And then... Uh, to follow up on what Luke was talking about, adherence to the mitigation plans at each school has been super important. When we've had cases, community health has been very impressed with how little impact there has been within schools. Most of the cases, particularly as we've experienced it and as community health has experienced it, we're able to you know, just shut down the small area where that student was. 
Sometimes it's not even the entire classroom, depending on the age of the students and each school's mitigation plan. It might only be the people who sat immediately adjacent to that student. So if you have a school of four or 500 and you only have to eliminate even just one classroom, that's better for all students. And sometimes it's even been less than that. So adherence to the mitigation plan, really focusing in on following that framework and doing the things that they suggested we do to keep schools open has, has so far, six weeks and one day into it, really panned out well for us. So you both have mentioned some of the what's working. The other, what people are interested in knowing about is what are the lessons that we've learned since, you know, so many districts still need to start to open their doors. They're hoping that they can learn from our experience of six weeks in. So Luke, maybe if you're willing to start with you. Yeah, I think broadly, when I think about what's working and and what are the uh, lessons learned, the entire community has to be behind school being in session and school being good for kids. And when I think back about our planning and the various stakeholders that really supported this initiative to keep kids in school and to keep schools open, I think about the public health officials that are like working tirelessly around the clock to do contract tracing efforts um, the evening before school so that they can make sure that schools open. Our medical providers who approached us and said, told us, hey, we've got our own students, uh, our own kids attend your schools, and you've got to have face masks, and here's the reasons why you have to have face masks, and we're going to write a letter to support that uh, to try to really make sure our mitigation plans were tightened up. Capstone Clinic, when they approached us and said, we have rapid testing, we want to make it available to your students and staff because we know that if there's testing in place that that'll help keep your schools open, and we want to do that for this community. Our teachers, our teachers participated in all of those work sessions, our working group, all summer long, and really made sure that we were hearing from them about how they saw it best, the mitigation plans best suited so that it was safe for everyone and that we could keep schools open. Our school board, the commissioner of education, we just had so much support for moving ahead and doing this safely, thinking about this really pragmatically and, and again, with safety at the forefront. But um, we had so much support for school is good for everyone. School is so important for students and uh, making sure that we had a learning environment that met the highest standard of care. Everyone was just behind that. We had a lot of support. Mm-hmm. Dr. Traney, do you have a lessons um, learned or more? One of the lessons working? I think that we've learned is the importance of putting the time in up front and monitoring and adjusting your plans as you go along. And like specifically, what we figured out right away after our first case was that we needed to develop a checklist to make the next case much smoother. We didn't realize some of the things that we needed to have pre-thought until we actually had a case, like were they involved with athletics after school? Do they have siblings in another school? Do they receive special services while they're in school? And so we developed a checklist, and then and that helped with our subsequent cases, and then we realized that we had bottlenecks in our system. We had a health advisory team, and people had individual roles And if that person happened to be unavailable in a specific role, you could create a bottleneck. So we started cross-training members of the health advisory team. So if any one of us or even half of us happened to be gone now, we know that we could handle a case in a school pretty seamlessly. So lots, lots of work up front and then monitoring and adjusting to make sure you have protocols listed and access for people from everywhere. That was another Typically, when we have a case, most of the people are not in the room. 
most of us are somewhere else spread across an area the size of West, Virgi uh, West Virginia handling this. So using the technology so the team can meet. That's terrific. I, this is a historical time, no doubt. I mean, we will look back on this and we are one of those districts that did open doors. Is Are there any last thoughts from either of you about things you would like to share with other administrators? I might say um, when we went into this, we didn't go into it thinking we were going to keep schools open no matter what. We knew that we didn't have all of the answers and we know that we still don't. Monitoring every day and adjusting relative to the environment that's around you, I think, is the super critical piece. We are very fortunate right now in Alaska and particularly the Matsus Borough School District that our community spread is really low and we have a big geographic area. And the reason we have the, the health advisory team meet every day is because it may not continue to be that way. So we're being very successful right now, and I think we can continue to be sex successful, but we aren't pretending that we've found, you know, the magic cure and there's, there's no way we can just ignore COVID. The, the point is we can't ignore COVID and we have to pay attention to it every day and make sure that we are keeping all of our students and staff members safe. One of the things that I've shared with some other folks in, in my world in communication is really doing this work right now is you're still doing school as it was. And then on top of it, you have the additional responsibility of the COVID work. So it is just, it's worthy. It's good work. Um, it's important work, but it, it's it's more and there's more work to always be done. So Mr. Fulp, any last no, I, I think uh, Dr. Trini summed it up well, and I think one of the reasons why we're able to monitor it and stay on top of it and continue to keep schools open is because we, relatively speaking, we have pretty low transmission rates in our community. And so that's just something that's important for our entire community to hear is we need to be safe in schools, but we also need everyone to to do the same things when they're not in schools. And, and as a community, if, if we can be COVID smart in uh, 24 hours a day, we're going to be able to have sports. We're going to be able to keep students in school. We're going to be able to do the things that we need to do for the students that we serve. So, I'll add one more thing, just because apparently as an administrator, you can't ever <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something that Luke said, keeping schools open, it also, it, you know, if the community does the work to keep our schools open, that also keeps our economy open. Mm. You know, if kids are able to come to school, we're providing a valuable several valuable bits of life experience for those students, but we're also allowing their parents to go out and work in the workforce. So it's, you know, it's just a win-win if we can keep schools open. Everybody does better in the Valley. Well, I want to thank uh, Mr. Luke Fulp and Dr. Randy Trainee for spending some time and just sharing a little bit about the experience of keeping at-school learning open during COVID. And you can find this podcast, your favorite smartphone, and wherever you find uh, podcasts and tune into Education Matters with Dr. Randy Trainee. Thank you both. Thanks. Thank you.